This version of the Room Now podcast is dedicated to highlights from ULAR 2022. Herein, you will hear reports and perspectives from the Room Now faculty and key opinion leaders in rheumatology. Enjoy. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now, and welcome to the RA panel from ULAR 2022. I'm joined by a group of the Room Now faculty who have a particular interest in rheumatoid arthritis, and I'd like them to introduce themselves to you. John. I'm Jonathan Kay I'm at UMass Chan Medical School, as you can see from my background in Worcester, Massachusetts. And it's a pleasure to be here with Jack and my colleagues. Richard. Richard Conway from Dublin, Ireland. And Eric. Uh, Eric Dine from uh, Institute of Rheumatic and Autoimmune Disease in New Jersey. Excellent. All right, folks, what we're going to do is um, bring the audience up to snuff on what we thought were the key presentations from ULAR in the field of rheumatoid arthritis specifically. So um, why don't we begin with Richard? What, 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 what really got your attention at this meeting, Richard? I think the, the one that um, excited me the most uh, was the Treat Earlier study, um, which was an intervention in pre-RA um, with metotrexate. And um, we've seen a couple of studies uh, like this before with um, rituximab in the prairie study and abatacept in the aria study. And I've been a real naysayer and doubter of the validity of these studies or wisdom of them. But really all people were doing was treating what was actually RA and this, this theory of preventing RA um, by early treatment. It, it never really was a runner with me. Um, but this study is slightly different. Um, so what they did in this, it was a randomized double-blind controlled trial. Um, there was a one-year treatment period and then a, a one-year follow-up uh, period. Um, patients uh, were randomized to either metotrexate or placebo. Metotrexate was dosed up to the maximum tolerated uh, dose with, with a limit of 25 milligrams a week. All the metotrexate patients also got a single shot of IM depomedrone, uh, methylprednisolone, 120 milligrams at the start of the study. I'm not really sure why, um, but they did. Right. Um, and then, so there was 236 participants um, overall. Primary outcome um, was the development of arthritis. Um, and actually, there was no influence on this. Um, I think it was 82 versus 84% uh, developed um, arthritis over the follow-up. There was a bit of a delay um, in the development of, of the arthritis in high-risk um, participants. Um, but again, they all ended up in the same place. But when you looked at the actual um, secondary outcomes, it became really interesting. Um, so there seemed to be this sustained benefit to this early treatment uh, with metotrexate. So but this was both an imaging measure. So MRI detected inflammation was less um, in the metotrexate group, um, but also on pain, morning stiffness, functional outcomes um, in terms of HAC. Um, so this is, is really interesting to me. It's, it seems that this early intervention um, with metotrexate um, has this kind of corresponding window of opportunity in pre-RA to what we already know exists in, in rheumatoid um, itself. And it seems by, that by intervening earlier in these patients, you get long-lasting benefits potentially for the rest of their disease course and seem to modulate them into a, a less severe version of rheumatoid um, arthritis and um, if it does develop and um, this is really exciting for me. So I, I want to give the audience a, 
um, sort of visual picture of how this went. Everybody gets randomized. And if you just looked at both groups, methotrexate placebo, the two lines are the same as far as their Kaplan-Meier plot falling off and developing RA. But if you split it up by ACBA or high-risk patients, the lines diverge and the ACBA and high-risk patients had less progression, but in the end, they caught, caught up, right? Um, at the end of the, that, that year. Um, but you're saying now that the individual parameters, the hack um, and the MR inflammation and whatnot, those lines stayed divergent and parallel um, over the duration of the study. I'm having a, I, but I, I found it interesting. And the authors said this was the first study to suggest that there was a window of opportunity and that there was a benefit to early intervention, but it sort of gets nixed by the primary endpoint, does it not? I, I'm not sure it does. I don't think it matters. I think that to me, they picked the wrong primary endpoint. It was never going to, that was never going to work out. We, kind of already knew that from, from previous studies. Um, and I think to some extent, the endpoint that they found is potentially even more important. So um, individual components could be as impactful. I mean, ultimately those components might be the things that we end up treating. The, the results were somewhat reminiscent of the old PROMPT study, which also showed separation in arms on the methotrexate versus non-treated groups but only in, in seropositive patients. But in the end, it didn't matter. So I, I do think this is very compelling data and does argue um, in some ways in favor of it. I'm going to argue that the ARIA study was better at it. But uh, uh, Eric, John, you have any, what do you think about the study? I think, it's an important, study? I think it's an important study and it justifies treating patients with arthralgia, especially those who are seropositive earlier with methotrexate with the potential of some benefit. Uh, we're not going to prevent the onset of rheumatoid arthritis in most patients, but uh, as this study showed, there may be a better outcome and these patients may have less severe disease. And we don't know down the road whether they might avoid uh, escalating therapy to other agents or more intensive therapy. Uh, so it's a short-term study and it doesn't look at 10 years of follow-up, uh, but there is potential benefit. I think it's a a very important study in that it looks at treating patients with arthralgia with methotrexate and looks at the potential benefit. Uh, we have to remain agnostic as to whether this is the right thing to do or not, but I, I would give it a thumbs up. Eric? Yeah, I, I think it, again, kind of, we used to have this, you know, black line of, of you have to have synovitis in order to, to meet the definition. And I think you know, with these arthralgias, it's not all comers, but finding the patients at high risk or with antibodies. And, you know, I use a lot of ultrasound in my practice and whether it's ultrasound or MRI or doing things to screen these patients early or start them on medication early. I think it's um, starting them at the onset may have long lasting benefits. So let me, I'm going to come back to all of you at, at, uh, after I talk about the ARIA study briefly and ask you, all right, it's your mother or your mother-in-law, are you going, and they have preclinical disease, are you going to try to treat them with either methotrexate or um, abatacept? The ARIA study, which we presented at ACR 2021, was a 100-patient, actually 98 patients were enrolled um, study who were either, and they had to have MR inflammation uh, in their hands and feet, I think, 
they had to be seropositive. So, um, but they didn't have swollen joints. They had on average like three tender joints and zero swollen joints um, and not much in the way of acute phase reactants, in fact. And they either received placebo or um, abatassa uh, sub-Q uh, weekly for six months. At the end of six months, there was significantly less um, joint inflammation and significantly less progression to RA in those that received abatacept compared to placebo. At that six month time point, there's another 12 months of observation off all drug that goes in. And that's what they reported here at ULAR. I didn't report the MR outcomes, but it did report that after 12 months of observation, the separation between the abatacept group and the placebo group continued and those lines never met. And the other parameters that they were following clinical parameters showed improvement in the abatacept group more so than in the placebo group. So when I look at these studies, you either are not preventing any disease or you're slowing down the progression to that diagnosis or you're actually preventing. And to me, because the earlier study had the lines converge and ultimately people still develop RA, whereas in the Aurea study, they did not converge. They stayed separated and in fact, stayed parallel. Uh, I think it was a positive prevention trial. Now it's a still a small trial, 98 patients since and 18 months. Uh, we are going to wait on the much larger Aripa study with abatacept as a proof of whether or not to do this. But if you ask me, am I going to treat um, my mother or mother-in-law uh, who has arthralgias um, and either a positive MR or an elevated CRP, um, I'm just still only going to treat swelling. And if they don't have swollen joints, I'm not giving methotrexate or abatacept. Um, but these, both these studies do make me think of that I might do this. So let me then ask the, Richard, what would you do? I would, I'm going to disagree with you, Jack. I would 100% give methotrexate. And in fact, if, if my mother had arthralgia that was bothersome for her, had an MRI that was positive and had seropositivity, uh, I'd be given metotrexate and leaving her on it. I wouldn't be stopping it. And, and it wouldn't change if it was your mother-in-law? No, probably not. Okay, good. Good answers. Someone, someone might be listening. John, what would you do? Uh, I would probably, I would agree with Richard. I, mean, I think there's little downside to starting metotrexate. Uh, Abatacept, uh, Bit more expensive. Uh, the study's small. Both studies are small and short term. Uh, I think the the jury's still out. Uh, also, what measure do we use to detect active disease? There was an interesting presentation on the first day uh, from Manchester where they looked at ultrasound power Doppler, and they also looked at DAS twenty eighty SR, and they found a discordance. And they found that there were patients who had active disease, but had negative power Doppler. So ultrasound, even though in Eric's hands, it's much more sensitive than other measures in terms of detecting active disease, is not absolutely foolproof in detecting active disease. And then now a decade ago, looking at what was then the corona database, we showed that uh, sedimentation rate and CRP were both normal in 58% of patients with active rheumatoid arthritis by CDI, and then in another 12 or 13%, one of the two uh, was normal. So 
up to nearly three quarters of patients with active rheumatoid arthritis have a normal level of acute phase reactant, uh, given that they have negative power Doppler in some cases, it's hard to assess. So uh, there's little downside, I'm pretty comfortable using methotrexate, little downside in prescribing methotrexate for these patients. And as long as they don't develop toxicity or adverse symptoms, uh, it may have benefit. You know, the, I think everyone would agree that swelling get, is, ticks the box, on, uh, box of activity. But then where, how far do you go? You know, on one hand, um, tenosynovitis on ultrasound is a highly predictive variable in these preclinical patients, yet uh, ultrasound findings don't well predict response um, very well. And so it's hard to know. I think, if, and of course, I'm not, I, I, I train in ultrasound, but I don't do it regularly. Um, <clears throat> I think someone who does a lot of it still would probably want to use that information. But Eric, you get the last vote. What would you do? Yeah, I think my, my mother-in-law is staying downstairs. So I have to give a, a good answer. Um, I, I would say, you know, I think I would also go with methotrexate. I think methotrexate is, um, you know, it's the backbone of RA therapy that uh, I think if you're going to start someone on, on some thing, I think it would be methotrexate. Um, and, and I think if you see, you know, not just a story of aches and pains, if you see, uh, you know, clinical, if you see synovitis on, or inflammation on an ultrasound or an MRI, even if it's not true joint synovitis, um, if they have a good story for morning stiffness, if they have, um, antibodies, I, I think you, you do have benefit of treating them early. I do want to remind our, our, our audience that no guidelines currently say that we should treat preclinical RA, but then again, they didn't really have good, any, any good data to go by and we're starting to get good data. So that might change the next time we see guidelines come up. John, why don't you give us one of your favorites, um, from the meeting? So I think there were a number of themes at this meeting in terms of rheumatoid arthritis, uh, one of which was lung disease, uh, the prevalence of lung disease and the morbidity of lung disease, but another was digital medicine. Uh, and I was impressed with a presentation that was given uh, on day two of the meeting from Spain, uh, abstract OP0132 uh, from uh, Valencia, where the group uh, used natural language processing and analyzed unstructured clinical data from over 2 million medical records at six public hospitals in four different communities in Spain. And they found a prevalence of rheumatoid arthritis using this methodology to be about 0.5%, which was comparable to previous studies. Uh, and then they found about 11,000 patients with rheumatoid arthritis and found a higher prevalence of interstitial lung disease than previous studies. They found a prevalence of interstitial lung disease of nearly 9%, whereas previous studies had found nearly 2%, nearly 4% as the prevalence. Uh, and they found that uh, cigarette smoking was certainly associated with the diagnosis in two-thirds of patients. Uh, two-thirds of patients were female, as might be expected, and the mean age in those with uh, interstitial lung disease was uh, nearly 70 years old. Uh, so this study uh, took advantage of natural language processing to screen thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of medical records uh, from a large number of patients to identify the prevalence of interstitial lung disease. But uh, since chest x-rays weren't necessarily done uh, in all patients, these were clinical diagnoses. So it may have been an over, overestimation or an underestimation of the prevalence 
But this technique of natural language processing is being developed nowadays and is tremendously powerful for epidemiologic studies. Uh, this is an example of how it was used to look at interstitial lung disease, but it could be used in many different, uh, for many different applications. Uh, an area of interest at this meeting was the safety or lack of safety of JAK inhibitors, uh, and certainly using natural language processing to screen medical records for comorbidities and for adverse events might give a more precise uh, indication of relationship or lack thereof between certain adverse events and certain drugs. So this abstract intrigued me. It might not have been the most important abstract at the meeting, but it certainly was one that was very interesting. Richard, you've written about lung disease and RA in the past. What do you think of that? Yeah, no, I think it's very interesting and it's uh, important data to have. And then we, we as, as John said, we have this kind of range of estimates of uh, lung, interstitial lung disease and rheumatoid arthritis ranging from 2% up, up to higher numbers. Um, and it seems with studies like this, and then even going back to the older data from, from the Mayo Clinic, you're up around 8%, that it is that kind of 8 to 9% that we're talking about. So something very important in terms of numbers and, and obviously in terms of its uh, severity and impact on patients as well. Yeah. Eric, what do you think of the idea of using machine learning to guide you in your thinking about these diseases or the diagnosis of them, it seems to become, it's becoming a bigger player these days. Yeah, I, I think it's it's um, definitely a tool that will be out there. And I, I think there was a, a great debate on telemedicine and the role of telemedicine um, where where they had the pros and the cons. And, and in, the, in the pro argument, they talked about artificial intelligence and communicating with your patient and flagging patients. And so I think this machine learning or AI is going to be, um, it's going to be there. And I, I liked the point that they made that it's there and it's there in the private sector and, and it's going to be a part. So I think we, we need to learn how to accept it and how to, how to use it. Um, but I think especially for a research perspective, it's a tool. You know, I don't think it's going to replace everything in our research, but it's a tool that I think can definitely shine a light and do some of these big large and large, large population studies that we couldn't do by going through the medical records. Yeah. So in looking at this data, first of all, I have to say I'm big time in favor of artificial intelligence, machine learning, Moneyball. I wrote a blog about it. It's still my favorite blog um, because I think that's where the answers are in the future. But um, to be fair, balanced, I looked up important quotes about machine learning, um, deep learning, AI, and um, I found these two. One, machine learning is no substitute for natural stupidity, um, number one. And the second one is if your mother says, are you going to drop off the bridge like the rest of your friends? If you're a machine learning person, you're going to say yes. So there, the idea is that there is something within machine learning that might miss the obvious. And it is going to take, obviously, your wisdom and judgment to figure out how that factors into um, what you may be, be doing. But like John, just like you said, this, this, is, this whole idea is being applied to clinics where, where we're not making early diagnosis, like spinal arthritis, right? And when the, and it seven to 10 years to make a diagnosis there, well, they could identify them a whole lot earlier through, um, you know, basically machine learning and natural language processing. So I think it's a, it is an advance. We need to see if it gets clinical application going forward. Well, the big problem uh, is that natural language processing is dependent upon the language that's in the medical records. 
And if people don't write good notes in medical records or are not precise or are imprecise, then natural language processing is not going to substitute for that or overcome that limitation. True. Very true. Eric, what, what's your, one of your favorites in the meeting? Yeah, I thought another big topic of conversation from the meeting is um, RA and, and more comorbidities. And I think um, when we look at what are the big morbidities, there's been a lot of discussion recently. Obviously, I think we all know that depression is important. Depression plays an outcome, but how, how much of an extent that is, I think it's something that that is surprising us when we look at data on this. So there's an oral presentation 0067 that looked at incident depression, uh, risk of morbidity, uh, of uh, I'm sorry, mortality in, in rheumatoid arthritis. And um, obviously that's, a, that's as key of an endpoint as we can have. And what we found was a six time risk of, of death in patients uh, with rheumatoid arthritis. So I, I thought this was a huge takeaway major number. Um, and there was a lot of discussion about the methods that when they did this, this was based on a you know, population based study where, where they defined depression as the first filling of antidepressants. So they were looking specifically at incident depression and, and they looked at if they had their first antidepressant fill. And obviously we know that's whether or not you take, take uh, antidepressant medicines, doesn't mean you have depression, doesn't mean it's capturing everyone, doesn't mean it's truly an incident diagnosis. Um, there's obviously a lot of noise of that, of, of things like duloxetine or, or medications that may be treating active RA or active neuropathic pain. Um, so there's definitely some noise. They, they talked about that they, um, they validated it looking at ICD codes. So they, they did um, kind of dig into the methods a little bit. I think when they come up with a paper, they'll, they'll tell us a little bit more there about some of the other findings. But I, I think regardless of how you, you look at it, um, the fact that patients that are on an antidepressant have a six times higher rate of death. Uh, and this was largest in the patients that were under 55 years old. So did, um, they re did they report what the causes of death were within the, that? They didn't, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah so, so, so it's a, obviously a marker, maybe surrogate for comorbidities that kill, but it's real, it was a scary presentation actually. And uh, I got, a, got my attention and, and I was worried that there was just confounders, but they confirmed it by those ICD-10 codes. So um, I think this issue came up a lot in our Room Now Live meeting and other things. You know, we are not good at asking the question, do you have depression or screening for depression in our clinics? You know, we have issues of comorbidity concerns and we use that to certain advantages, but we're not so good at managing comorbidities. But this might be something where we really should have at least one question. Are you depressed or or do a you know modified Beck inventory or there's another tool called a was a PHQ um, or something along those lines. It's a short questionnaire, but I, I don't know. Has anybody addressed this at all right now in your practice? I certainly don't. Well, if you go back to the 1990s and Ted Pincus, yeah, the rapid three has caught on, but if you look at his original uh, questionnaire, there were three questions after those 10 questions that comprised the rapid three. And they were, do you have any difficulty uh, dealing with feelings of anxiety or depression? Uh, that was one of them. So uh, Ted was screening for depression way back. Uh, and if you hand out that questionnaire, not only is there that, but on the reverse side, there's the 50 item review of systems. And the I think it's the Columbia uh, 
depression scale, if you check off all of them, uh, that's certainly depression and nothing else. So uh, that questionnaire, if people would go back to it, was a good screening tool for, or at least open the door for discussion about depression. Yeah. Mine, mine is one checkbox amongst 37 checkboxes of what's bothering you now. And um, it tends to be more of a marker of fibromyalgia, but I think even, we know fibromyalgia patients don't respond well. They have lots of problems. Uh, I don't know if they have higher death rates though. Richard, do you, how do you address this? Uh, not very well, Jack, to be honest. Um, and I think it's something we all need to address because I mean, these, these results are shocking. There's a six-fold increase and we can talk all we want about all the, the caveats, but if this was anything else, if this was cardiovascular disease with that association, God forbid if it was one of our drugs with that association, we would be up in arms over it. But because it's depression, people don't really give it the attention it deserves. And I think we need to be better at that. Yeah. But if you look at this study, it's the treatment of depression that's associated with the, six <laughs> the antidepressants. <laughs> people under the age of 55. So the study needs to be uh, repeated, uh, looking at depression without treatment versus depression with treatment. Uh, you, know, you could say that pain is a surrogate for active disease and active disease is a, a predictor of mortality, uh, malignancy and so on uh, in rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, with cardiovascular disease, the studies point to treating cardiovascular disease to reduce mortality but here mortality is associated with the treatment for depression. So I'm not sure what to make of this. Yeah. Well, it's something we got to keep our eye on and, and probably incorporate into our practices. I want to go to another theme and that was steroids. Um, steroids were prominent mainly with the presentation by Dr. Martin Bors of the Gloria study, which has been going on for some time now. Um, and the Gloria study is a two-year study of people over age 65 who are given five milligrams of prednisolone or placebo and are followed prospectively. Um, again, it's an older group. Um, they did not meet their, in, their target enrollment um, and they changed some of their statistical analyses along the way. But in the end, the patients who were on steroids versus those that were not had a clinical benefit and a radiographic benefit. And and he showed the data in multiple ways, but he showed lines, you know, diverging and, and being different. Now, to be fair, these patients didn't have very severely active RA going in. And the magnitude of DAS28 um, benefit was minus 0.37. Um, and if you looked at the best possible candidates, worst possible patients, most compliant patients, the benefit was minus 0.62 which is at the limits of, of what the maybe an MCID or minimally clinically important number is uh, for the DASH 28. So, and then the, uh, X, the X-ray benefit, I think was like 1.3 units, um, but that's on a, you know, a sharp band or Heidi scale of up to four, four, 440 units. So the question is, was the magnitude of clinical and radiographic benefit worth the harm? And there was, in hazard ratio, a 24% increase in harm. And most of that was made up of by infection um, and mainly non-serious infection, not serious infection. Um, there was not, in, not presented, but there was a difference in fracture rates between those on steroids and those not in the short-term study. So it's, to me, it seemed like it was, you know, what, glass half empty, glass half full. If you love steroids, 
you're going to like this data. If you don't and hate them, you're going to like this data. And this is important because then Joseph Smolin presented the ULAR guidelines and spent almost 10 minutes discussing the ULAR position, which is in contrast to the, R, the ACR position on steroids. The ACR position says, don't use steroids. And if you must just use them a little bit and for as short as period as possible, but don't use steroids, use more methotrexate. ULAR says, our, their research says you can use it. And their research says that 80% of patients who start steroids as bridge therapy are off of it within one year. And that there are significant clinical benefits to that, not radiographic, but clinical benefits to that. And, and that they just changed their guideline to say, it's okay to use bridge, bridge steroids. And they just added the line to taper and discontinue with the idea that everybody, but so now we're left with an ACR versus ULAR opinion on steroids. And we're also left with a Martin Bors versus Jack Cush opinion on steroids. And, and the question is, where does the audience lie? I, my colleague and friend, Catherine Dow, I think did a Twitter poll and asked the audience, the rheumatologists, where do they belong? Are they in favor of the ULAR position or the ACR position? And I think she said that more were in favor of the ULAR position. So how did you guys take all this data? Let's start with John. So I would say, well, the data are clearly divergent in terms of the guidelines. I would say, ask the patient. And when you have a patient with active disease and you start them on methotrexate, it's gonna take a little bit of time for them to derive clinical benefit. And during that period of time, the patients are quite uncomfortable. So I will give a 20 days worth of a tapering course of prednisone to make them feel better uh, and tide them over until the methotrexate starts to work. Certainly there's a downside to prednisone in terms of its toxicities, long-term toxicities, even with short-term dosing and comorbidities. But if you pull the patients rather than the rheumatologists, I bet that the patients would be largely in favor of short-term glucocorticoid therapy. So steroids with an expiration date. Uh, Eric, what do you do? Absolutely. I was just about to say the same thing. I think I, it comes down to function and the patient, if they can't work, if it's in, inhibiting their ability to function, then, then I give steroids, but I, I do exactly that. I, I, I think you cannot do, let's give you five milligrams and we're going to taper you off of it because they'll have it at home. They'll continue to take it as needed. And that's what's against both of the guidelines. And so if they need steroids, then I will give them steroids. If they do not need it, I will stay away from it. Um, but I'll say, this is the course, you know, there's only this many tablets and then you know, if there's issues from there, we'll have to address them. But the goal at that point is to start a steroids bearing medicine. Richard, do the ULR, new ULR updated guidelines and the Gloria study change your practice at all? Oh, you're going to set me off on a rant, uh, Jack, about the Gloria study because it's not, not the study itself, but the way it's being presented um, annoys me quite a lot. Like they, they've even changed the title of it at, at this uh, presentation to specifically say the favorable uh, benefits uh, of using uh, low-dose steroids. Um, and I think you've described the data very well. I don't think it particularly shows that. I think the other thing to remember about that these patients, they were going in with their, their mean DAS of about 4.5. Only 14% of them had been on biologics. And they're almost portraying this study as either this low-dose steroid or nothing, whereas actually we have lots of other treatment options that are a hell of a lot safer than, than long-term steroids, I would say. Yeah. Um, and in terms of the ULR guidelines, um, I like John, I'm kind of almost, my practice is in between the ACR and, and the ULR guidelines. I give most, but not all patients 
um, a few weeks um, of steroids at the start, um, but no longer than that. Yeah. All right. I, I, I like that discussion because I think it helps the audience to, in their consideration of this kind of data and what they may do in their, in their practice. All right. We have a little bit of time left. Let's do sort of a lightning round, a quick hits on something you thought was a good takeaway for the audience to know about. Richard, do you have something? I have a bit of the, the weird and wonderful, and that was the, the study by Pernell et al. of uh, ice cryotherapy. Um, and this was an animal model um, of adjuvant-induced arthritis. Um, so they put ice onto the, the joints of rats, um, and they found it alleviated the arthritis symptoms. But actually, much more interesting, it also reduced aortic inflammation in the rats, suggesting that this simple local treatment approach had systemic benefits for this and whether this will translate into the much larger larger organism that is a human uh, i don't know but it's uh, i thought it was very interesting i think it would i, I th i'm waiting for the study where ra flares are going to be treated with um 90 seconds of cryotherapy you know three days in a row as, oppo as opposed to using steroids that's the study i want to see but you got to start somewhere let's start with a rat um john so there were a bunch of uh, presentations about real-world safety data of JAK inhibitors compared to TNF inhibitors. And there was one that really intrigued me, uh, oral presentation 0258, uh, which was an analysis of the Vigibase data uh, base of uh, individual case safety reports. This is a WHO spontaneous reporting database. Uh, and we all know the limitation of spontaneous reports. I mean, how many times when a patient has an adverse event associated with a drug, do you write to the FDA or to uh, another regulatory agency? But uh, this uh, looked at uh, these spontaneous reports between 2011 and 2022. And over these 12 years, there were nearly 300,000 reports filed about adverse events occurring in rheumatoid arthritis patients treated with either a JAK inhibitor or a TNF inhibitor. And over 4,000 of these reported a major cardiovascular adverse event and over 1,400 reported a venous thromboembolic event. So there were lots of reports uh, and they found by analyzing this that the use of JAK inhibitors was significantly associated with an increased risk of venous thromboembolic event reporting compared to that with the use of TNF inhibitors. Uh, there was no overall increase in the risk of major adverse cardiovascular event reports, but the risk of MACE uh, reporting by physicians, and specifically that of myocardial infarctions, was significantly associated with the use of JAK inhibitors compared to that of TNF inhibitors. And then they looked to see whether this was just an effect of the uh, FDA alert that was issued in 2021 about the risk of major adverse cardiovascular events and venous thromboembolic events with JAK inhibitors. So they looked at the year 2020, and they found that there were significant associations for both adverse events with JAK inhibitor use detected the year before this FDA alert was issued. So it wasn't just uh, that there were more reports because people were aware of this uh, adverse event association. So I, I thought that this was really interesting because I've always been skeptical about analyses of spontaneous reporting databases as a measure of drug safety. Uh, because of the spontaneous and sporadic nature of these reports. But this analysis of the Vigibase database was quite impressive and seemed to correlate with what we've been learning using other approaches. And this is what we have to look at, given the scare, if you will, 
um, uh, afforded by the oral surveillance study last year. I don't, I, I'm, some rheumatologists have been, most rheumatologists haven't, I don't think have been major in a major way affected by this. Some have been, I can tell you dermatology where they're getting all this new indication with Jack and Hibbers that most of them are very afraid of using Jack and Hibbers based on this data and the label um, box label warnings that have come out. And that's going to affect their patients who, you know, with atopic dermatitis and alopecia areata and these new indications. So uh, we do need to fall back on this, you know, these larger data sets to get a true read on, on, on who's at risk. Eric, you got a quickie? Yeah. So I, I was actually in clinic today and the patient brought up to me at the very end of the clinic saying, um, I have a question. I, I have decreased um, you know, sexual performance with my partner. And is that related to my rheumatoid arthritis? Um, and I, I saw a presentation over the ULAR conference, uh, OP0139, which looked at just that. Um, and so it was a, a study where they, they did the CSFQ14 questionnaire. And they looked at um, five different domains in that questionnaire, looking at things ranging from sexual drive and sexual performance. And it showed across the board uh, that there was a higher sexual dysfunction in rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis. Nearly 50% of patients with RA, um, 30% in PSA versus 6% in a control group without autoimmune disease. Um, so there's a lot of conversation about um, potential confounders of this trial as to response bias and, um, and role of steroids versus role of uh, inflammatory disease. But I think those numbers also are interesting and um, we should be talking about depression with our patients. Or should we be talking about this as well? Um, but I think it's at least something that we should be validating that there are concerns and that there probably is something related to uh, either the disease or the treatment of the disease. You know, um, the big thing these days is shared decision-making where you're having a discussion with patients about some of these difficult things and the, the uh, cornerstone of shared decision-making are decision aids and educational materials. And I think if someone wanted to make a bazillion dollars that they should get into that business, you know? these decision aids and educational materials that we can give to our patients. It's one thing for you to talk about that, Eric, but now what's the, you know, the four-step plan that that individual can overcome some of their concerns about performance or getting an erection or whatever the issue is going to be without us doing, yeah, it's been seen, shrug the shoulders, and here's a consult to somebody else who probably is not going to be as effective at it as you. So um, I, I'm really glad you brought that one up. My, my last one was a, a, a study, an interesting study from um, a, a Spanish registry, a, I'm sorry, Brazilian registry, uh, Biobata Brazil, looking at antimalarials in patients on biologics or targeted synthetics, showing that if you look at the patients who are on antimalarials versus those that are not, and again, everybody's taking either a JAK inhibitor or a biologic, that the ones on hydroxychloroquine had better drug durability, less adverse events, less serious adverse events, less serious infections, le and I'm saying less, I mean significantly less, significantly less hepatic AEs. I'm not sure what that really is. And they trended towards lower glucose and lower um, um, lipid levels, which is what is a well-known effect of hydroxychloroquine. The one thing you'd like to have seen would have been less cardiovascular events, because that's been reported with hydroxychloroquine use. But remember, these people are already on drugs that probably decrease inflammation enough that it would lower cardiovascular events and maybe the hydroxychloroquine. So again, this is one of these reports that basically makes out that 
drug that I've been making fun of for so many years as probably being one of the most powerful drugs that we have in rheumatology. Anyway, I want to thank our panel for a, a really interesting discussion and covering some a really wide range of important topics at ULAR on rheumatoid arthritis. Tune in for more of these panels on Room Now. Good night, all. Good night.